Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. This is your host, Rob. I'm here with Mark and Catrice, and we have a very special guest, Smunchy from Smunchy Games. He's going to talk to us today about a blog post, interestingly enough, called How Well Will My Game Sell? and other publisher questions. And the reason I wanted to have him on and talk about this is because this is something you don't hear too much about in game design forums or uh, on Reddit or on Discord. There's not a lot in the uh, talking about business side and product side and, and all of these things that happen after you're done with the design. Um, so we're going to poke him about that. We're going to poke him about the game that he's putting out, Paths, the worlds of a... I'm going to get this right. Paths, the world of Adia, uh, what that's about, and the other game he's got coming out, Tidebreakers, and, well, just a host of stuff that's coming out from Smunchy Games, so uh, we'll get into it. But uh, first, a very big flail, 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 flail forward. <laughs> it's perfect. I'm keeping it. First, a big flail forward welcome. The Smunchy from Smunchy Games. Yay. Thank you very much. That was a great introduction, by the way. <laughs> yep, dumpster fire's already begun. Get more kindling. Certainly unique. That's our that's our brand. <laughs> unique. It's a it's a special smell. Yeah. Talk to <laughs> talks about this post. How well will my game sell? Because um what first of all, like what inspired you to write it? What sort of credentials do you have? Like what what why should we listen to you about how well your game sells? Yeah, you know, that's that's actually a great question. So I'll start off with the inspiration and why uh, that's a thing. So um, I very much, I've been, I've been essentially watching a lot of people uh, in the tabletop RPG world, very specifically tabletop RPG, not board games, not card games, um, but RPG. And um, there are a lot of designers out there um, trying to either sell their game through drive-through um, or they're trying to become independent publishers or their publishers in general or claim to be, I don't know, uh, in some of those cases. But what I do know for sure is that the, the few friends that I have, um, it was, it was hard for me personally to stand by and I guess not say anything this time around because <laughs> I, I do <laughs> care about them. So, um, but most importantly, uh, it actually started with just a, a simple question from um, from one of those friends on a, on another Discord server of you know how come my game isn't selling? I I have you know ten years worth of content. I have like twenty eight different products out or you know however many. So that's an arbitrary number, but they had quite a bit. And um, you know there were some there were some hard truths for me to you know, tell them based on my analysis and like those other things, but I didn't want other people to fall into that trap again. Um, and I, I personally really think that there is so much talent out there and there's a lot of skill. There's a lot of just great people. Um, and there's no real um, order, I guess is the right word for it. But most importantly, there's just not a lot of uh, information out there, which is odd. You would think, cause we have the internet, right? We're in the information age. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Like, you know, just looking around for the questions that are being asked in um, in discords and, and forums and stuff like that about RPGs, RPG design specifically, um, very rarely do you, are the questions asked, like, what sells in, in RPGs? 
Yeah, exactly. And that's that's pretty much exactly why I wrote this article. And, uh, you know, it it's one of those things where I so I originally started in the video game industry um, as a, a third party guy. I was actually very young. I was 14, by the way, when that started. And, you know, I, I learned a lot from a lot of people, even at that young. And um, I, I learned marketing there. I learned business strategy, um, you know, from a lot of the bigger dogs. One of them was Blizzard Entertainment right um and others were like bungie and valve and a lot of really big big names um you know and me being a kid i'm just like ha, i just get to play all the games and make money while doing it but the reality is that there were a lot of great lessons that i learned there like watching you know from halo 2 climb up the ladder there uh, they broke records blizzard breaking records with um world of warcraft when i was doing stuff with that team um, SQA and a bunch of other things, you know, there, there was, there was so much to watch and even more so today, you know, like esports, they're now a huge thing. Right. And where all that kind of transfers out, I guess why it was so important, um, in tabletop in general is because you're actually, you're in a new age now, you know, from 20 years ago where I was playing those video games and things like that. Um, tabletop has boomed in the past, I'd say five to 10 years. Yeah. And you're getting a lot of people that were video gamers coming into tabletop. Um, and actually, a lot of them are designing their own games. That's another reason why I wrote this, too. So having that experience from the game industry, but even in my own, um, you know, consultancy, my own companies, things that I've done in the past, uh, there's a lot uh, when it boils down to marketing, uh, what you can do, business validation, all those things that I covered in this article um, and why they're so important. Um, they'll definitely save you a lot of grief in the end, but I would say if you're, if you're at least not going to listen to me, um, on this, cause I, and I do have the experience here now within the tabletop industry too, to, to speak to it as Munchy games, I, there's a, a list I can give you that I can recommend to you, but unfortunately that none of them are in tabletop. <laughs> so, right. um, and that's the unfortunate part. And sometimes it might just come off boring. So <laughs> that's just the truth. Yeah. Um, well, it's not boring. So, well, I, mean, I there, think there... that's kind of true, though. Like, if you look at the tabletop RPG market just at the moment, it's like, how many big names are there that actually know what to do for marketing and such? There's like D and D, and hmm, it's kind of a yeah. problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Shadowrun gets some press. World of Darkness yeah, gets some press. It's well, very minor in comparison. Yeah, like, but in terms of like mainstream marketing push, yeah, no, nobody does anything except D and D. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you kind of have to have like the video game background to know how to like market the game and how to, you know, know about player psychology or what things players are looking for because most of the RPG market just doesn't know these things yeah you're right <laughs> i mean <laughs> and and the thing like for me too that i i'm and that's why i called this part one of the article more than likely because there could be four parts maybe even five but then there's going to be a bunch of offshoots because there will be words that i i throw in there like ux design and mm -hmm. service design and why design not just game design is so important um 
amongst other things, right? Like marketing jargon and all these things that people like the, the eyes will just gloss over. <laughs> um, <laughs> but where it it's at least relatable. And I mean, we got a ton of hits on this article. Like, yeah. I mean, just in like two days we hit, we broke 2k just, that was nuts. I didn't expect that. Um, and yeah, so they, and they want to hear it from someone who isn't tabletop, you know? Yeah. Not, yeah. not the dude like, Hey, you can buy my funnel clicks here. Right. Like yeah. Yeah. no one cares about that. They don't want that. That's spammy. <laughs> Yeah. They want someone who's running a publishing company or who is a big name game designer or whatever the case may be. Um, they want that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's ultimately the reason for the inspiration and really why you should, you should listen. I mean, I have a lot of information I can share. So a lot yeah. of lessons learned. Um, we call, so the nice way of saying it is calling wis it wisdom. But, um, you know, a lot of mistakes, too, were made, right? So. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the best definitions for experience I've ever heard is that which you acquire just after you needed it most. Absolutely. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. And intelligence is learning from experience, but learning from someone else's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm more than happy to share it. So. Well, good. Awesome. So, so okay, so let's, let's get into some of the some of the little points here because some of the finer details are interesting. Mm -hmm. um, this idea of quick validation. Ah, yeah. So the idea that you can, that you should have, I, I mean, elevator pitches are something we encourage everybody to do like on this podcast, on, on Reddit, like pretty much everywhere. It's like, Hey, develop an elevator pitch because that helps you focus on what your game's about. Like if you can't explain it in a couple of sentences, maybe it's not as focused as it should be, you know, or could, or could be rather. Um, yeah. so, so, so just that, and then, but, but this is a, a step beyond that. So, yeah. Um, so quick, yeah, quick validation is very much a thing that everyone should do for anything that they do, whatever they're making and they're trying to sell it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of why I talk about it in there in that form, because, you know, this actually crosses over to every single thing you've ever bought has been quick validated, whether it's a service, whether it's a product, whether it's the phone that's sitting next to you, whether it's discord that we're sitting in now, anything that you're doing has been quick validated. Um, and it's so important to do because it can tell you at least to give you a glimpse of what the future is going to look like. Mind giving a quick definition for our listener. Oh uh, yeah. So more, more or less, um, you want to talk with 10 strangers. You want to say, hey, what do you think of this product? Um, why, why uh, you know, would you play this? Or what, whatever their, their feedback is going to be. You want feedback from 10 people you don't know that aren't game designers at all. They can't be game designers. Because if they're game designers, then they're going to start digging deep into your, your product and your project. And you don't want that right now. You want to talk to a gamer who regularly buys product and um, who is interested in these things. And you will get the most honest feedback <laughs> that you'll ever receive. Um, no matter how painful it is. Exactly. And, and that's why quick validation is so important because if you have 10 different people that you don't know that aren't friends, aren't family, aren't, aren't you know, any of uh, game designers at all, these people, that means they're legitimately interested in your, in your concept and your idea. Um, 
And more than likely, that enough right there is proof that you got something. Because, um, I mean, especially nowadays, you know, like even on Reddit, right? Like it can be, there's a lot of truth bearing there. People will just speak their mind and they're very honest. Um, so I know in a lot of it, and that's the other piece of this too. A lot of people are afraid to do that. And I actually go over that in the article. You know, there there is some emotion and some um, mental and physical, even sometimes things that we have to get over those obstacles. Mm-hmm. And it can be really hard uh, to do that. Now, the rule that I live by is um, fail fast and iterate. So mm-hmm. if if you fail fast, it won't hurt as bad later. So you kind of just want the sting right now. <laughs> it's mm. like ripping off a Band-Aid, you know, mm-hmm. it's that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so if someone comes up to you, you know, and you're validating this and you're saying, hey, uh, do you do you like this idea? Do you like this concept? Or even, hey, would you like to listen to my idea? And they're like, uh, no. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. okay, are you sure? And then they're like, yeah, I'm sure. What that actually means is no, not right now. And I even detail that too uh, mm-hmm. in there. So maybe you can come back and ask them later. But even talking with someone is an art. It's a soft skill, right? Right. Um, and that's very hard to do. So um, once you can get past that, though, the quick validation, the 10 strangers, um, and then run with it. Like, that's that'll be a good start. Um, and, and ultimately, I would say anyone who's starting to do that for the first time, you know, I have no problem, um, you know, having others, like, message me, pick my brain about it. Or anyone else that I, you know, has have done this as well in the past, but um, it, it comes down to getting over, well, really getting over your self hurdles mm-hmm. first. Yeah, yeah, I agree. This is an, an interesting step too because I think there are a lot of people that are in the RPG uh, design community that are doing this for fun, where they don't necessarily have the intention of publishing and making a lot of money off of it. This is an interesting project for them. But this step of talking to 10 people will at least give even those types of designers an idea of saying, well, five people loved this idea. Five people hated this idea. Am I okay with doing my weird experimental concept and getting that kind of response from the community? Because if I'm designing this game for that weird crowd of five people that is into it, then that's great. Um, And if you want to take it more... I don't know, mainstream, publish it, have people buy in, then there's that, uh, I guess, a a greater risk or uh, greater flack that you might receive based on who you're talking to um, when you're you're trying to take that game to the next step. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, those that are hobbyists or those that are just, you know, wanting to um, get their, their game on a shelf and call it a day, those, it would absolutely benefit them as well. I agree. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of why I even later on through this article, we'll get there, but I, I do talk about, you know, Hey, do you want to actually be a designer or do you, do you really want to be a publisher? Because, you know, we kind of need to ask those questions. Those goals are incredibly important because if you, I mean, sure, there are some times where great things come out of the unknown like that. I mean, that's happened to me plenty of times too. Um, but what I had learned, and this is the little bit of wisdom <laughs> that I learned here, if you don't set that goal and you don't really know what it is, um, at that point, you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants and you will struggle. You will fall eventually. Um, 
and it makes it harder because if you don't fail fast and you're still doing that, it does. It no longer feels like a bandaid. It feels like someone stabbed you, um, which is why it really sucks. So it's it's important to really consider those goals and the quick validation. So, um, yeah, no, that's a great point for sure. Now, yeah. two of those things together, like having your goals and your quick validation of your 10 people you check with, those actually kind of go hand in hand in, as well for like figuring out what kind of a product you're making too from the sounds of it. So if you're like aiming to appeal to a broad audience, then if you're checking for 10 pieces of feedback, you should hope that you're actually hitting a broad audience. Whereas if you're aiming for a niche audience, then it's not as big of a deal if you only get like five people loved it and five hate it. That's right. Yep. And so audience does matter. And actually, that'll be going more into that in the second article. Um, and the reason why I didn't in this first one is because when we do go into audience, um, tabletop especially has so many niches in it that it can be very hard to determine who is what and why. Um, where, where it gets really hard is um, if you are going to create something that five people hate and five people love, uh, you you will struggle depending on your goal. So if, if you're someone who is like a hobbyist, then then that's perfect. If you're someone who's actually trying to make it, you know, your dream and this is what you want to do full time, you need a 10 out of 10. Don't go five out of 10 because if you go five out of 10, it's not going to happen. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it's true. Um, and that's kind of why it's it's like when you really think about your audience. And again, we'll go we'll go deep into this because I could talk about this all night. <laughs> but, that's what we're here for. We're here for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's 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 when like for, here's a great example. Okay, I'll give you I'll just give you a small small piece of this. Um, someone like who plays a lot of Call of Cthulhu, right? Um, that's percentage based system. Um, where someone who plays Fate they're very different than most Call of Cthulhu players that are like at the hardcore level. Now you have, of course, the people who are variety gamers and they'll, they'll flow and be social and they're butterflies and they go between all the different systems. Um, but there's more than that to just the system. Now the system is a very big deal and it, it's a, it helps uh, very much, especially to, to the game master and all those other fun things. But when it comes to marketing, um, the system is the one that's going to do better than the other is the one that's easier to learn. Meaning fate will do better than call of Cthulhu in the end. Um, just because fate actually had, they don't have these percentage based things. And if you want to pull straight out of tabletop for a second and you look into mathematics and what that even means, um, most people haven't even gotten past algebra, right? Right. In, in today's age, unless of course you're a programmer or someone else, and that's that's pretty rare to to not see someone, I guess, in this audience range of tabletop RPGs. But there's a reason why Dungeons and Dragons 5e is so popular. Yeah. Okay. And that's mm -hmm. kind of why it's so important to take those things into consideration. So minimal <laughs> amount of math. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my God. That's right. Your your yeah. early system was was. Oh Jesus Christ. Yeah, I remember that. Um, because percentage-based damage, so I thought 
so simple. <laughs> it seems so simple on paper, and then it's like, oh, that's just simple by my standards. Right. Oh, and I think that's part of it is that a lot of people that are designing this, they look into the math. They care about it. It's important to them what probabilities yeah. are. And um, like when you're rolling 3d6, how much does that change versus when you roll in a scale of 2d6 um, or whatever your system is? But there's an investment of probability and math and stats that maybe the average person doesn't have and doesn't care for um, in their games. So it matters to the hardcore players. Like your math had better be really tight for the hardcore players. For the casuals, they not only don't care for the most part, if you bring up math as a concept as more than like small addition, they usually start getting pissy about it. Exactly. So the, the designer needs to then say, my, the level of math that I care about isn't the level of math that the end user is going to care about. I need to make sure that this is uh, streamlined, concise, and simple, fun to play. So, um, yeah, there's a, a a mental check to just make sure that everything is probably uh, accessible. From our understanding and what we've tested, do you agree with that, Smunchy? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I do, actually. And it's it's one of those things where I'm going to go back to Call of Cthulhu here again, because I've got a little short story for you. So um, taking that same thought that we're discussing here and, and kind of, you know, hey, this isn't my, this is what I, I think is simple versus someone else, right? The mass. Um, there were a few friends of mine, they're board gamers, and um, they do some very heavy board game stuff. Now, uh, they love Cthulhu. They love everything about Cthulhu. They love HP Lovecraft. They love the world. They love the setting. They love the lore. Whatever it is, you name it, they love it. Um, and Mansions of Madness was one of their favorite board games. Well, they saw Call of Cthulhu, and they were like, hey, we should play this. I'm like, no, we shouldn't. And they're like, why not? It's like Cthulhu. And I was like, yeah, it is, but here's the thing, <laughs> okay? And I'm going to show you all the system. I'm just going to show you like the first 10 pages, and you tell me what you think. And they're like, okay. By the end of the night, um, they pulled out <laughs> another board game to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, this is first edition Manson and Mansions of Madness. Yeah. 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 I, I, I played it uh twice and yeah, it's it's a bear for sure. I mean, even compared to most RPG systems, it's like, wow, this is an RPG system in a box, is what they gave us, and it's not even a terribly simple one. <laughs> exactly. And that's that's why that comparison's so important because while Mansions of Madness is like this heavy it's a heavy board game, like especially first mm -hmm. edition, right? Um, yeah. But when you compare it to something like Call of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu is a beast. Like it is Cthulhu. If if Cthulhu was an RPG, that's the embodiment right there. And it's... no, I I I will push <laughs> back on that. I'm sorry, sir. Fatal is Cthulhu. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean that's a good one too. But like, you know what I mean? <laughs> At least when it comes to that, the new people getting into RPGs, that's why they're going to five E. Yeah, but, but because of that reason. I mean, Fatal represents the forbidden tome. I mean, if anything is going to be like the Eldritch thing, thou shalt not touch. <laughs> it would, I would put Fatal squarely in that bucket. Um, and yet, specifically because of that, so many people flock to it. Right. It's supposed to be a bad joke, but... <laughs> But it's worth looking at because the, the re and the reason is, is like it's, it, it just checks every box of like how not to do it. 
it's it's yeah. it's 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 the perfect it's the perfect example of of a game of how to not design a, a good game um and i think it should be in you know every designer's bandolier as a reference because uh you know gaze into the abyss i guess yeah but at the same time there is definitely a market of people that actively go looking for the absolute worst of something yes yep yeah it's true which is why they why Call of Cthulhu still exists today in that way. But even more importantly, there are hardcore gamers that enjoy that. You know what I mean? Um, and they just so happen to nail that audience. They did they did a really good job with it. Um, but that's again, you know, kind of going back to this. If you want people, a lot of people, to play your game, you need you do need to make it accessible. Um, which was another thing we learned we actually learned you know looking at 5e there's a way to make 5e more accessible oh jesus yeah i mean on its face i mean just the spell chapter alone <laughs> <laughs> i mean That's... come on they could have done it in any order other than alphabetical <laughs> like the worst possible way to do that Why? Yeah. yeah and they left out like who gets the spell at what level right i mean it's like you remember in uh uh oh no what was it isn't no there's something key piece of information i remember reading the 50 5e chap magic chapter and going like why is this not here and it was oh whose list it appears on they didn't have a list in the front of uh who gets what from like it was all you had to flip back to the class list and then forward mm -hmm. to the magic chapter and then back to the class list to, you know every time you picked a spell it's just like gee come on really yeah well, and that's, and that's kind of why, you know, with, I mean, and to be fair, I still love 5e, by the way. I do love it. I enjoy it. Um, it's just, it's one of those things when we were testing with our players, when we were making Paths World of Adia, mm -hmm. um, we learned that a lot of people that were coming into the game, a lot of them actually had never played an RPG before, which was kind of crazy. I was like, why? Like, that was my first question. I'm like, <laughs> why are you here? <laughs> you know? Right. And they're like, well, it, it's the world. The world has caught me. And I was like, okay, well, cool. If you like the setting, that's awesome. Um, they're like, so how do we play? And initially, we actually had a percentage system. We had this Call of Cthulhu type of clone thing happening. And it was a disaster. <laughs> um, it was so bad. It was just bad. Um, was it basically just the basic role-playing framework? Like percentage roll-under type thing? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And it wasn't even any of the like crazy you know hardcore type of mechanics there that that uh, cthulhu has it's just it was very no everyone was like i don't want to play this anymore <laughs> um really? and we we got yeah. that a lot and and to give you an Ooh. idea we had 800 beta testers whoa what yeah so 500 of them were like i don't want to play this anymore you might be a bad game designer <laughs> no, the fact that from that mistake means that it's kind of a good one. Yeah, eventually, well, yeah that's true. Eventually, yeah. but at the time. <laughs> now, <laughs> it's oh, the fact I... that you can learn from that and not be like, yeah, well, they're wrong. Yeah. There you go. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, exactly. there are a lot of designers that unfortunately do that. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. But that's so. How'd you get such a big pool, though? So that's <laughs> what'd you and, do? And that's why we're talking. What, so, what scam did you run? 
so so here's here's the uh, other piece to um rpgs um role playing is important and storytelling is important so if you're creating a system and this is i guess my my small gold nugget here that i'm going to throw out to everyone if, if you're creating a system remember that um it's very rare to create a system that um, already isn't out there that's fun. Uh, more, more importantly, um, those systems, everyone's doing them. Everyone is doing them. Uh, what's harder to do is a story and tell the story well and tell the world well, build the world well, and actually engage people within the world. That's harder to do, and not everyone's doing that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, that's something we've we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit, like, it, you know, going as far as calling uh, RPG story creation engines as yep. a, a different perspective on their design and analysis, uh, because they are these engines of rules that produce an experience and story at the same time when you use them. That's also the main thing I've been stressing is that your setting is the main thing that draws people in first before anything else. I, I liken it to cake and the fork. So like the setting is the cake and the fork is the system you use to eat the cake. And some people really want a Star Wars cake and they will use the worst fork in the world to eat it. I'm not <laughs> referencing I'm not referencing the Fantasy Flight Star Wars, by the way. I'm just saying people like if you put Star Wars on a thing, a certain percentage will just buy it and play it no matter what. But they will like some people just use their hands to eat the Star Wars cake. Yep. But uh, you want the best fork for your your cake also mm -hmm. but the cake is what people are showing up to eat they're not showing up to use a fork that is so true yeah. um, like that's such a great analogy because it's absolutely true so if unless they're waves and they want to use the chopsticks <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah. <laughs> sorry i have to destroy every analogy <laughs> thanks thanks cat you're so valuable <laughs> i mean that could be weird chopsticks too like they could try to be using a shovel i don't know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> too many spades to eat a cake. All right. Um, Continue. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's it's true for sure. And it's you're right. You're absolutely right. So we attracted so many people because Adia is a world that sets some familiarity in the world of fantasy, but it breaks a lot of tropes. And we're actually introducing a lot of new things that people just haven't seen before not in this way anyway like our orcs aren't these you know large brutish raiders that pillage and everything they're actually blue and they're nobles and they're like humans um and our humans are defects they aren't the noble race in fact the word human in adia means defect so they're banished from kingdoms and things like that hmm, um yeah or like elves our elves are these massive viking brutes with huge beards and they take pride in their beards and they hunt and they could like rip a cow in half if they really wanted to you know so, a question then because you have this setting that you know people are interested in yeah how did they come across it in the first place like did you do uh, advertising on certain uh sites did you use a lot of pictures or just you know raw text or what did you do to let them know it existed yeah, you know, uh, there. So there are a lot of many ways, and um, and I, I can't wait to cover that in future articles too. But I'll I'll share some of that here tonight, so you, everyone gets an exclusive. That's kind of cool. Ooh, um, yeah. 
<laughs> so the the first thing I did um, is I paid for art. I got artists, and um, I said, "Hey, if if you will will join me in in this regard, I'll pay you X amount per piece, or you know whatever contract is stated here that we have agreed upon." Um, and I want these pieces. I want it done this way. And I myself, I'm I'm also a visual designer and I'm an illustrator too. So I know that how to. A lot. Yeah, absolutely. So I I know how to speak with a lot of the artists here, and um, those pieces are the ones that brought us all these people in. Um, it got them interested in the world. It got them interested in the story. Um, even on Reddit, actually, on the world building subreddit, you'll be able to find the port of Shamardair. It's like it's got over three thousand karma, I think. It's in one of the top ever on their Reddit. So it's it's things like that. So we'd we'd post it in you know Reddit. Uh, mm-hmm. We would post in different discords. You know, we would build relationships, talk with different people. I would do paid ads um, to the beta, and um, actually pull them in that way. So we'll, we'd use art to um, via Facebook. Uh, mm-hmm. So Facebook ads matter. Um, Google AdWords. Twitter is a big deal, so the right hashtags and also at the right time when you're tweeting. Um, and then networking. I mean, getting to know people, and uh, but not just getting to know them for your own purpose. Like that's the other piece of this too that I I have to say. Um, there are there's a lot of people out there that will market and do marketing and they do it well, and that's kind of where ads come in. So yeah, that's like the impersonal side. You know, you're doing inbound marketing, you're paying for ads, and mm-hmm. people are going to come in because they're interested, right? But the other side of it is when you're doing like relationship building, you have to genuinely be interested in what someone else is doing too. Um, And that's actually a rule I have for myself. Because I'm such a geek and a nerd, (laughs) I'm genuinely interested in everything that everyone's doing. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, that's awesome. That's cool. What's this bug thing? You know, like I'll I'll geek out over Mm -hmm. something for like an hour with someone that I don't even know. Um, And and that's, I, I guess, maybe partly a personality thing too. But but in all reality, being genuine is is very important. So uh, building those relationships and uh, getting that out there. And that was, of course, after our quick validation. So uh, and that's that's the long part of the process that takes a long time. And even then, there's, you know, when we were doing ads and, and not being completely personable at that point in time, it was also trying to get the audience right. And right. Uh, we had... I mean, I can't tell you how many times we had to change the audience just on the Facebook ad feed um, to really hit home. And there were some weird ones in there that I didn't expect. <laughs> so one of them, um, I mean, and by weird, I mean, they. I guess they're not too far off, but it's, it's odd enough to where people go, I, I never would have thought of that. So for example, we started targeting Fortnite players. And they ate it up. They were like, I want to play this game. What is this? Like, this is cool. You know, so we're having these like kids between 15 and like 18 years of age. <laughs> and they're like, dude, is this a video game? I was like, no. They're like, what is this? I'm like, this is tabletop. And they're like, what is tabletop? And I was like, let me oh, show man. you a new world. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. others were like, um, I don't know, old school World of Warcraft players or right. Diablo. Yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I get a definite WoW slash early Diablo, like Diablo 2, early Diablo 3 vibe. More Diablo yeah. 3, yeah, vibe off of these 
the, the art that you've got on the site. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah so Bright we, colors we, that, that they're eye grabbing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and that's kind of why when we were targeting them, we had realized at that point in time, and we were anyway doing our like data science and all the other fun stuff that, um, these people were coming in from the video game sphere. They weren't just, um, they weren't your typical tabletop RPG gamer who's doing stuff from like PBTA or um, right. Fate or whatever, right? Th these were people that had heard of tabletop, like they heard of Dungeons and Dragons. That's a brand home name, home name brand, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're like, you know, I, I remember, I remember a guy, this dude, dude, this was so unreal. I couldn't even believe this. This dude was 87 years old. He sends me a message on Facebook. He's like, he goes, wow, I haven't seen anything from tabletop in like 50 years. I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he goes, he's like, this is the first time I have actually looked at anything tabletop since the very first when TSR released D and D. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when we got that feedback, I was like, we're doing something right. Yeah. Um, and sure enough, he even play tested. He was like, this is an amazing game. He's like, you let me know when this thing goes live and I'll huh. buy like 10 copies. So it was pretty, it was That's pretty awesome. amazing. Yeah. And, and the thing, you know, and this kind of, again, goes back into that system too. So like how we did this, this it's all, it all domino effects. So when we were starting to redesign the system, you know, we had to consider players that hadn't played tabletop mm -hmm. RPGs before. Yeah. So what ends up happening though now is we get a beautiful clash of people who have and people who haven't. Um, and the one thing that we know is still true today with paths is that we have a card system in in the uh, in the game. And for those that are veteran tabletop players, it'll it'll stump them every now and again. They'll be like, "Oh, I, I forgot to actually use this action card. I didn't even know why I didn't use this." But then you got the new players over there, and they're like throwing cards out left and right and they're like yeah I'm, I'm killing it you know they're doing awesome things um and now to be fair there's also another piece of that where we realize that um not everyone has the time to sit down and schedule stuff right like that's right. the bane of the existence for rpgs yeah. so we created a gm in a box and um we now have <laughs> we have gm in a box system where people can actually play even by themselves if they want to um, and that was a really big win too. It was a very big draw and especially to the retailers. So now we have retailers knocking on our door too, because of that. Mm -hmm. I could definitely imagine. So, so your GM in a box, not exactly how it works, but like some broad generalities. Yeah. So think of it kind of like a choose your own adventure. Um, not so much so to where you're like flipping through pages and doing all that stuff but cards they exist there's an adventure that you go through um you uh, one two six players i i'd say you could probably do more if, if you want that long of a night um <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh you all sit around this deck of cards and it tells you the story um the cool thing is is that we have a voice for the gm in a box so every now and again whenever you like flip over a card um, you'll get Boxy. Boxy will show up and, you know, kind of talk about what's happening. Like, for example, they they go into a barn and like Boxy's like talking how he's he's mudding through some some junk that's on the floor. And he's like, 
oh gross why did you want to go in here you know <laughs> so it's it has been really rewarding hmm. in that way um but this is the key piece it has taught people how to play the system without having to sit down yep. with game master exactly. or anyone else for that matter therefore making the game more approachable right more accessible Most skillful, yeah. and that's actually kind of a really major thing as well as you know acquiring new players like not just you know players that have played other games before but as you said like you've got a lot of players from video games and from other areas so what other tricks do you have for you know drawing in a new fresh audience right so i mean exactly so the gm in a box is one the world is another uh the card system is another and then when you kind of put that all together the biggest one and this was really probably one of the largest draws to not just, I guess, new players, but to players of other RPGs in general, um, was the paths system itself. Uh, one of the biggest complaints in most RPGs today is multi-classing and how it works. Um, we have found a way to essentially where, and in a way, I guess you could even compare it to the, the Star Wars um, Fantasy Flight games, like the way they do their tiers um skill, skill tree ish yeah so we have we have our paths right the difference here is that with the 10 classes that we're releasing in launch um you can take uh so you can start with the one class whatever you're doing like let's say you want to start with a warrior and you got battle tactics uh and you got spell sword and you got uh, combat right or berserker i think is what's called something like that anyway that doesn't matter but you have the three root paths from there you can actually gain path points to go deeper into the tiers, or you can pull a path from another class, and you can constantly do that. So, like, you can be a shadow mage, so you can pull shadow from, like, the assassin's path, that class, and you're now a mage and you have those paths to work on. You can be a mage, assassin, beastmaster. You can be... Um, those three plus a shaman like you you really get to create your class uh in the way that you want so that that was a big one um overall and we actually found a way to balance it <laughs> which is yeah. why it's taken so long <laughs> so right uh, yeah i can imagine that would take a while but that's actually kind of a big thing that i've noticed is that if you're aiming for a broad audience you kind of need to be able to have Things that allow each individual audience member to play the way they want to. Right. So you That's need to right. have as many options as possible or give them the ability to build their own. If you box them into a very limited set of options, I mean, it's good for a niche audience, but it's not going to reach like a larger one very easily. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. I think there's a, a growing trend that I've seen as well of um, this idea of all the classes are accessible. It's how you want to um, put them together. All the pieces are there. It's just where you mm -hmm. want to choose it. Sort of like the um, Path of Exile. Um, oh, yeah. Where... Which they just released a new patch today. Oh, good to know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, where it's very much like you start off at a certain point, and maybe that's your preference at the time of character creation is sitting down to try to play this game but everything is within reach um 
even like the Skyrim-esque where just start the game, just play stuff, pick up a sword, pick up a, a bow and arrow, see what you like playing, and then develop that. And I think that that's been a big push lately in RPGs, whereas I think more traditional styles um, either had no class system or a very defined class system. So it's interesting to see that now it's sort of like a design your own or, or make what you want from your, your play experience, which... Yeah, it's yeah. somewhat hybridized. Like yeah, there, exactly. there's a uh, there's a, a, there's a modality where you just you you assign you can assign uh, values to each ability, right? So like mm. you know power attack. Let's let's use a uh, third edition D and D for or fifth, right? So like you have the action surge, fighter action surge, and then at that point somebody else gets something that is roughly equivalent, and so you can balance across the classes no matter what option is chosen as long as you know what one equals in that system what equals mm -hmm. one and you know you can tune up an ability by tuning down another one by a half step or whatever it is but as long as you have like a, a an idea of what a, an object like you need an objective value notch just to judge everything else by mm -hmm. so that yeah that well at least for balancing things for making sure that people have the uh, an equal share of the spotlight around their abilities yeah yeah and actually that's kind of why so that that's really one of the big the big things here right i used the word ux just a little bit ago and, and that's what this is you have to think about the user's experience so yeah if in this situation um you know you're bringing in the seasoned players i mean they really kind of know everything now granted it'll they still have to learn a new system but they they'll they'll pick up fast new players though um, the one thing that a lot of people, cause you're right, it's hybridized what we've done here. What a lot of people do is they'll go to the extremes be like, Hey, you can do whatever you want, which is, is fun also. Uh, then there's things that are very extremely, you know, there's structure, so much structure that you, you're just drowning. And here with this hybridized one, what we learned, and this was another mistake we had made that we, we fixed is that new players, while they want the freedom they still need a small form of structure. If they don't have that structure, they really won't know what to do to start. So you start by giving them the structure, and then as they grow through the world or the game or whatever it is they're doing with their friends or their family or you know even by themselves, in, in our case, um, they can then branch out and kind of spread their wings. They, they now have room to stretch and go, okay, I can go into like tier five of... A paladin and start like casting judgment upon everyone while also at the same time being a necromancer you know so like those are important things to note you know and it's 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 really something that a lot of people when you're when you're designing your game or you're marketing your game take that into consideration um because the new player they they want the structure to begin with right like i mean think about starting a new job you know, it's the same thing. You kind of want to know what to do, right? Unless you're going to be cast to the fire, which some people adapt really well. Sometimes right. others don't. And in this situation, you don't want to just throw them to the fire. You want to give them the good experience, train them, and then they're going to develop their own ways of playing. Right. So, And I, I really like what you were saying about that, that GM in the box, because I feel that even though um, players might be guided through... The, the playing experience, it's also a way of guiding 
GMs, like players to become that leadership role. And I think exactly. that's, that's a critical part that is missing in a lot of games is how do you actually get that story in game? Because as, as great as your, your setting might be, it's really uh, dependent on someone to lead that story and tell that immersive experience. And if you have that as a thing that's built into your game, then you're that much more likely to get good buy-in from the players that are actually enjoying the experience. So it's a, it's a smart way to actually teach people not only how to play the game, but also how to run it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, it was, it, it's, it's, it's not, not only that, it's an old trick. Steve Jackson Games in GURPS 3rd Edition had in the back of the book, basically it was a choose your own adventure path with a character um, mm. that was a pre-gen character. And you, you, I, I played through it a bunch of times. That's how I learned to do it. I mean, like, I, and it, it always struck me as weird that games never, like, that was the only time I ever saw it. Like, it was a choose your own adventure, like, thing where it was essentially... No, it's not the GM in the box because the card, you can do more things with that clearly. And there's pacing there. Um, but it's, if you're, if, if it is essentially a choose your own adventure with certain, uh, decision points and stuff like that, then, um, yeah, it, it, I can totally see how it, you can guide, you can guide the, the growth of GMing skills in that way by, by, uh, exemplifying a certain tone in mm -hmm. in your writing. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting idea. I dig it. <laughs> or um right. at least from 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 their perspective if, if they're a kid i guess but even as as a person first time coming in um you know how would you structure this story you know i mean i guess in a way you can kind of see that in a module uh from something like pathfinder or D, &D but here you get the them in these small digestible chunks like this is what the scene looks like on this card you know and that's um that has also been extremely beneficial to getting people to even some of them heck even want to write their own book now just in general like novels so something i've actually come across is i used to do like ghost writing for a living for a bit so what i discovered is that there's a lot of people that pretty much everybody has at least one really good story in them like there's so many people like that that were just like completely random people like engineers or doctors that wanted to write like a fantasy novel but they had no idea how to do it and they had like everything they needed for pieces they just didn't know how to put them together kind of thing you don't actually need all that much nudging to basically guide them into being able to tell their own story like there's a little difference between you know 
being able to put it into a full novel, but uh, being able to just, you know, do like role playing, like you don't need nearly as much to nudge them into that. That's right. And I think that is going to be like a really large potential audience for people. It's just trying to get people to recognize that you can tell these stories that you've been meaning to tell for ages by just role-playing with friends. Like, you can totally do that. Yeah. The medium is still so young, though. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's still in its infancy. It's younger than television. Um, it is, but I, I think television kind of expanded a lot quicker in a lot of ways. Like, the main sure. thing on television that was holding it back was technology, for the most part. The main thing that's holding us back now, I think, is mostly just not a large enough uh, adoption to it. Well, there's that. There's also there's also significantly more buy-in when you when you buy a book of rules than when you sit down and turn on a television. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the medium is, is how many people read books, and then a small percentage of that traditionally, but now you have these other audience bases that are heavily gamers, like totally understand rules concepts. Like they, they, you know, they probably couldn't tell you the rules of Fortnite, but they all know them. Right. And so yeah. there, there's, there, there's rules based thinking going on. And so like they see a constraint and they go, oh, okay, that's a constraint. I, I understand what to do with that. It's like, this is how you do this. This is a mechanic. Like, you know, 16 year olds talk about mechanics in games now. Like it's something that gets tossed around. And so there's there's this audience that's that's still untapped for RPGs that that uh, or tabletop RPGs, I should say. People are figuring out like like Smunchy here are are cracking the code as to how to how to raise their level of curiosity to the to the point where there's some buy in enough to actually sit down and do it and, and schedule an event with friends because it's not like you go online and somebody else is online and you pick a play a pickup game it's like we have to meet up generally mm -hmm. speaking i mean you can do it over discord but like it, it's i i still think like gaming over internet is is suboptimal um for a lot of reasons uh but you know it's a it, even that's more work because you still have to schedule the time um Actually, that does make me think of something like uh smunchy you were saying that you would uh a lot of the first stuff that you had done to get people interested was the artwork. Were there any particular pieces that stood out that were especially good at drawing people into the world and wanting to know more? Like, was it a character piece, something like a magic spell or just an appearance of like a city's architecture or anything that really stood out that draw people in really well? I am so excited that we're about to talk about this. So, <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Buckle up for this one. So, yes, absolutely. There were very specific pieces. Um, and there were very specific things uh, that pulled people in. So, to to kind of give you an idea here. And um, it, it to me, it wasn't as surprising when it happened, only because... I'm the one who compiled the data and I'm the one who in a way, I guess kind of had just this gut feeling, which is weird. I don't know if intuition is a part of that or anything, but at least I had, you know, my numbers here to back it up. Right. 
And there is some truth in things like, um, you know, like there's dark settings or science fiction settings or things that aren't actually human characters or, you know, um, sometimes it could be architecture, could be interesting, beautiful pieces, right? Like it just kind of depends on what it is. Now, the, the two that come to mind, actually, there's three things. And they they kind of went together, which is why the art pieces did so well. So the thing that you have to know about Adia, about the world of it, is that Adia does not take the typical approach to necromancy as other worlds do. So um, necromancers in Adia are actually good. They're not evil. They're not bad. They have no evil content. Like, they're not at all related. In fact, them and paladins kind of walk the same walk. Which yeah, I kind of wondered when you had mentioned like the paladin necromancers, and it was like, so like yeah. what the Mormons posthumously baptizing people? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. Now, <laughs> but that's pretty good. <laughs> um, no, I mean, there's, and that's actually You're like healed, <laughs> right? Right. I, I'm I'm just you know a priest, but with like bad timing, right? Um, <laughs> it. <laughs> More they get or less. better eventually. It's close right. enough. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but they, the necromancy still looked like it was what it was. And that, I think, really tripped people out because they were like, why? And they wanted to know. Like, instantly, they're like, how can necromancy be good in this case? Um, more importantly, one of our races that got the most traction is something known as a Tuscar. Um, a Tuscar is an elephant person. And they... So one of the main characters of Adia, his name is Akenta. And Akenta is a Tuscar necromancer. Um, so when people saw this Tuscar with, you know, pinkish purple glowing eyes and like... I remember that. I actually right? remember seeing that, yeah. Yep. So when people see that, they're like, what is that? And they would immediately go into it and it, it basically one of the guys the way that he explained this to me that that even joined our discord like forever ago two years ago now he's like he goes it's almost like you took everything that's amazing about other games and put them into idea from setting to world to game itself and it's this is it he's like so badly have i wanted to play like an elephant person or like a necromancer that actually was good for some reason you know like those things captured them and they captured them hard but it was also the tropes though too so like the tuscar with the the you know these necromantic guys and him as a character that caught another piece that caught was um our orcs and elves because they're so different um it was really weird at first to people they're like like I, we actually have a joke where um there was a time where I was with uh, with one of my buddies and we had our game master, we set up a dungeon and um, essentially we had to break down this door and I'm wounded. Okay. I'm a firecrest elf warrior and I, I'm hurt. And the other guy, he's an orc paladin. And um, I'm like, well, just kick down the door, you know, just, just do it. Just get it in. So we can, we don't have to die in here. And he's like, I can't break this door down. I'm an orc. And all of us paused for a second. We're like, what? Oh Yeah. That's right, I guess so, huh? And he didn't have enough strength to actually kick this door in as an orc. And that right there 
when when you translate that and you put that into a piece of imagery like art having an orc paladin is in that way is pretty different um it it was so much so that people were interested in that they're like wow i, I like playing humans and they're they're kind of as as humany as they can be um maybe i should try this or you know the opposite for the elves they're like viking huge people those art pieces too um you know and and I'll, i can share some of those later i don't know if you link to things at on on your page for the the listeners but sure. yep. i can yep. i can give you some of those art pieces that really pulled people in yeah, um so yeah and then so there's that and then there was one piece that we didn't expect to do as well as it did so this was a surprise um, but it was the port of Shamradair. And it was an environment piece. And our environment artist, he's incredible. Anton's amazing. Um, but this one particular piece captured everyone because it was beautiful in what it was. And it was also very different for what it was. Um, so you, instead of, it, it's, it's so, and that's why I talk about the orcs and the elves in this way, because that port Shamradair is, is one of the elven cities, really one of the main ones. And you see these Firecrest elves are these big dudes and, and big, big women that are going around and like fishing and hauling boxes. And, you know, they're on, they're really rugged. And then you have this orcish trade ship that's a royal trade ship. And it's beautiful and it's decorated in gold. And there's like a gold leaf line on the front. And like the sails are gorgeous and the, the you know just the woodwork it's a beautiful ship and then you have these two brutish guards of like these elves standing next to it right so that alone just kind of went people went what the heck is this and that was we ran that actually as an ad um okay and i think we got over a hundred thousand views on it whoa wow. yeah i only cracked like 1500 on my best one so that's <laughs> that's pretty good man wow so yeah Mm. hopefully that uh i guess answered that question then <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well i am noticing a trend here <laughs> i'm definitely noticing a trend is that this seems to be things that are somewhat familiar but they're wrong right like there's something <laughs> that it's familiar enough that it's like okay i recognize the main parts that are going in here but there's something about it that stands out that makes you want to question it. And as soon as you question something, that's basically when you're actually interacting with it and you want to go further with it. It's like, once you're like, okay, I have a question about this, therefore I want to go ask the question. Mm -hmm. That's exactly I think right. that's that's probably the most important part to get out of that. Yeah, and and that's I mean I have to give credit to the the video game companies for that one because um, when they did that you know that's what I learned from them um, they they would do it in different ways like uh, through a specific mechanic right like oh people get I don't know you can you can shoot spells with your hands now in this video game right and then they mm -hmm. would ha hold this dev Q and A session and everyone's like oh that's so cool I get to do this and then they're like but what happens if I do this right now they're interested mm -hmm. that's why they hold those sessions is because it pulls in the interest and it's a great marketing tool hmm. in tabletop it's really hard to do that yeah i've noticed i've tried 
<laughs> the Q&A, I thought, would go over a lot better. It hasn't been bad, but, like, the people that I have that were going to be supplying questions, after a while, they basically ran out of things to ask. They basically, like, yeah, I got everything I want to know now. Yeah, and it's, it's like, we did, the same thing happened to us, too. <laughs> same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, like, I mean... Then I'll say, you know, I'll be like, our one of our biggest things is GM in a box, right? And we just talked about that. You know, we'll hit that, and then we'll hit the paths, and then it's like, well, you kind of know how these, if you played them, you're familiar with RPGs, and it's like, yep, cool, I got it. But then for us, the questions would stop flowing when it came to the setting and the world. Um, And I mean, I have, I still like just, just not even 30 minutes ago, as we had started, I don't, I don't even, I've lost track of time, but it feels like it's been 30 minutes. I don't know. Maybe an hour and a half. Oh, okay. That's, that's good. So I'm having fun. Um, (laughs) I had, I had uh, a a person message me about um, one of the other races in the world. One of our players, they're like, "Hey, how would I if I'm going to role play as this thing, and then we're going to use this NPC? How would I do this? Like, why would I do it this way?" And I was like, "Cool, let's talk about it." So, it's it's a really big. You're right that that's how you pull them in into the world of RPGs. So tabletop RPGs. Hmm. I need a special. That is a little odd though, because that's the kind of thing that I'd be like if somebody had asked me that, I'd be like. Shouldn't that be self-explanatory? Like, maybe I haven't put enough detail in for them to be able to build this themselves. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's um, that's a really, really great statement that I'm kind of glad you said. Because um, when it comes to, like, world building, especially, I think what ends up happening is people will assume what you just had said, like, this is kind of, isn't this like an obvious thing? Shouldn't you know how to, how to just like build your own thing? Aren't you imaginative, right? What people crave is more than just that. Like I said, they want freedom, but they want to live in a world too. Yeah. So if you don't give them the ability to live in that world, uh, more so than just like, you know, detailing how a cup looks or why a gold piece coin has a hole in it, whatever, it's more of like, if I am, you know, a Tuscar, we're going to use that in, in this example here. What do, what do I eat? How do I eat? But why am I eating this? What are my relations really here? You know, how would I move? You know, are there, could I actually do this? Is this against my culture? Like, there are things that in a way kind of seem obvious, but if they're not structured out, you know, then people will either A, ignore them because they feel like someone hasn't put enough time into it or B they'll make their own thing, which is what D and D was. And to be fair, that's still okay. You want people to make their own thing, of course. Um, But you want to put in that detail to where they feel like when they walk into the world, they can see it in their head. Yeah. Especially Um, when it comes to races, I've always been of the opinion that like, you should have enough information about the race that, you should basically know what's normal for their culture in main major things like you know the kind of stuff like how do they deal with death how do they deal with um celebrations um what kind of things do they value as a society kind of thing like 
those should be kind of just outlined so that people know they have a baseline to build their characters from, right? Would you yeah. disagree with that? No, no, I wouldn't at all. I mean, that is, you absolutely need the baseline. I think, um, I think what, and what I was saying is it actually goes one step deeper. And that's where the user experience, I guess, kind of comes into. There's that word again, UX. Um, so like you have this baseline and it's, it's perfect for what they need. And I totally agree with what you had just said. Um, and I, I know that people would say, maybe even listening now, like, well, what more is there? Like you just detailed this entire culture Right. No, and, you can't cover everything. That's not possible. And ideally, right. you shouldn't anyway. You want to have holes for them to fill. Exactly. So the question then instead becomes, what do you need to detail so they can fill in those holes? And it's it's even more than um, because because the one thing that uh, especially that I've learned as of lately, and by lately I mean even just these past few months. Um, you know, we, we would give someone like the Tuscar culture and be like, here you go, this is how they are. And they're like, okay, but but what if this happens here? And in some cases, I'd be like, well, create it yourself. And they're like, well, why? I actually had someone ask me that. They're like, why would I want to create that if it may already exist in the world? And I'm like, whoa, why, why, did, you, why did you ask me that question? That's so weird. Like, I've never had that done before. Well, and, it kind of implies that it's something that they feel should be, by default, listed in the world, is what right. it sounds like to me. Exactly. So, and if you can't cover everything, right? And that's an important part to cover, whatever it is. What, what, what were they asking about specifically? Or do you remember? Well, I, I do remember. It was, um, it was a very specific um, fruit that was being grown. Um, by the Tuscar and how they use it and what they do with it. And um, there is this tool called a spirit strainer. And um, because in the world, spirit magic is within everything. And you can even like juice it out of fruit and stuff like that. It's pretty cool, um, which is what creates potions and all that. But anyway, um, in their situation, they wanted to know about this tool and how it worked with the fruit um, and how you would actually get it in there. They legit wanted like, me drawing blueprints of how to use this thing oh with the fruit that's some very serious detail right yeah so like in most games people you know would be like oh well, you know you can kind of pass it over but no no they went they went hardcore deep into this one. <laughs> <laughs> and th those i thought they would fill it in but but no they really wanted to know and they're like we know and here's the other piece this is one other thing for everyone listening uh, what they had told me is they said, we know you know how it works, and we want to know. <laughs> so here's a <laughs> wow. quick thing to warn um, most people listening. Um, no, we probably don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that we just add that it's kind of open-ended. It's like, they'll figure it out. Or they'll just go completely mad trying to figure it out, at which point... We don't have to worry about them sending messages from the asylum, so it kind of evens out. <laughs> well, and the, I guess that's why that that this piece is so important because what attracted them is that I did know. And should have I filled it out? I don't know, but I do know <laughs> that because I do know these things, that's why one of the reasons why they're playing is because, or you know, they're interested is because I, I do know, and it's so. I've 
I don't know. I've never experienced that before. Like even I'm reliving it as we speak right now. Um, and it was such a unique situation for me because I'm like, well, yeah, I know all these things. I mean, when you think of like the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, right. Or even Tolkien's universe. Yeah. He knew a lot of things and there were a lot of things unwritten. And unfortunately, you know, he's passed on and so on and so forth. And he just couldn't detail it. So we got to fill it in. We don't know all of it though, is the thing. Like there's some stuff we do know, but the idea for like creating a world is that it basically feels real. Like there, yeah. there is a correct answer to this question and they don't know what it is, but they, they feel there's a correct answer. Like one of my favorite examples that I've used for this is the idea of like characters show up. There's like a big feast and a banquet and everything. And everybody goes around and they all have their own plates and food and whatever. And the hostess doesn't have anything on her plate. And then at some point during the dinner, her plate gets handed around. Everybody puts like a piece of food on it from their own plate. And then she never eats from it. And after everybody leaves, it never explains why that was done or what happens to the food on her plate afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's just the kind of thing that tells you there's a purpose behind this. It means something. There's a correct answer to it. You don't know what it is. It's going to drive you nuts. But <laughs> it keeps you thinking about it. And it basically, what I've found is that this basically says the world is still going on, even once the camera's taken away. Like, if the camera's not there looking at it, the world is still happening. There's still stuff going on you could have just turned around and looked at some other location, but the world is still happening. And that's kind of the field that I've always tried to aim for. But I think that's one of the big things that you basically ran into is that it felt like this juicer that you'd created for spiritual juice exists. There's a, there's a reason behind it. It, it, it has rules to it, right? Like, it's not just something that it's a throwaway that you don't know what it is. It's like, no, this is something that's real. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, then that's, that's kind of why I think when it came to that situation, um, it one, it made me realize how much I really put into the world yeah. <laughs> at that point in time. I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, and then two, it made me realize that that's where, um, you know, especially like mechanics and setting, it's really important. I think in, in that situation um, to have at least maybe some, some generic things there, but even more importantly that, you know, if your setting does hit off in that way, I guess just be prepared for it. Um, those are some things that we're kind of just, we're still going through. Uh, a good example would be like, um, I forgot the, the word we used, but it's it's a type of weapon that isn't really classified. And um, there we have a rule in there where like, if someone is so, you know, powerful and like they have like tier five and like five or six different paths or whatever they could pick up a mountain and throw it 
right? So we mm-hmm. have to put a rule in there for it. And we realized that the only way to do that was to have some kind of like generic scale that hit that and then put a note in there that says, hey, talk to your game master. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um that's that's the that's the other side of of the i guess the marketing fence is like you did you did great and now you're getting pelted with these these questions so um but we did we learned too great <sighs> yeah i guess so <laughs> i don't know i don't know i mean yeah yeah we'll move on from now. <laughs> um i have i have a couple of questions though i um there's a couple of things that are still still well, not bugging me, but I still I want to pick your brain about. Yeah. So you've got, we talked about a bunch about like the game and getting people into the game and buying into the game. But let's talk a little bit about like the behind the game thing. Mm-hmm. This is the, you've got, a, so you have a company, you yes. have employees, you have how, like what is generating income for you right now? What's funding? Like what, how are you making it work? What's yeah. that like? Man, I, I knew we were going to get here sooner or later. All right. So, <laughs> um, yes, I do have employees. Yes, I do have people that are on staff and that work for us. Um, it's pretty interesting how we do this um, because most anyone who is getting like full-time compensation or any of that are the artists. Uh, editors, too editors are are getting that as well but something that we didn't expect at least i should say i didn't expect for sure was how much passion people had for what i was doing um passion goes a long way uh, more than i could ever dream of and to be fair in my case you know yes i have the funds from other um, either consultant gigs that I had done or, you know, company profits that I had made in the past or whatever the case may be that I used to purchase the artwork. Cause that's actually a pretty important thing. You know, art mm-hmm. is not cheap by any mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. Um, we're learning that firsthand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I have, so I have, I think I have three or four covers right now. One of them costs like 1600 bucks. So um yeah notice how none of us is surprised by this i know right and that's no one was even like oh my god they were just like "Mm -hmm." (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean i guess i should say i got it discounted though so (laughs) um the original price was five grand but yeah the um, well and we'll we'll go into that later but that's because i i've worked so well with the guy and i've known him for a while so it's just but beyond that, you know, with passion, because art, art is one of those things that I think a lot of people don't understand. I think oh. they see it as like, hey, you know, you can just draw a picture and call it done. But <laughs> I, I would actually say my artists put into Smunchy Games more time than everyone else combined together. Mm. Um, they so probably like, have to too. Yeah, they do. So like the cover that was that that was so expensive, you know, the $1,600 one here that took him two months to do at like 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So I take yeah. that's like full painted then. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful piece, too. Um, 
and there's so much going on in it. I mean, it's like one of those, like, you know, where's Waldo pieces. Um, it's crazy. Um, and in, in that regard, that's kind of why it, you have to pay your artists, like just straight up. If you don't have the cash to do that, find a way to get the cash <laughs> right. and, and don't just use yeah. Kickstarter to do that because yeah. then you might actually make customers angry. Um, and do not promise them that they'll get a percentage of the profits when you're done. Right. Yeah. Never, yeah. never do that. Yeah, not not to the artists for sure. Um, there are, you know, doing that with writers. That's actually what I do um, on my team um, amongst, you know, some of the other people too, like uh, my, my game designers. But I can tell you that, you know, putting in 13 hours of work on game design while well, it's like a lot of work for example when when my artists are putting in you know god 80 every week right so like 320 plus hours on just one piece they need to be paid <laughs> yeah um, for sure, for sure. Just a tiny bit. yeah just just do it um and and that's actually something i'm going to cover in a future article is there are a lot of people that have asked me you know how can i make this kind of money to even pay for the art for my game. That is a question I get a lot. Um, and that's where we break out of tabletop and we get into um, entrepreneurship and what that means to be an entrepreneur and how that works. Um, even, even not just being an entrepreneur, but um, uh, finance 101 and economics, right? Um, so saving and, and all that that good stuff, other boring things, <laughs> but but things that are very needed in order to make things happen. Um, so on on my staff though, um, as as I had just mentioned, my writers and designers they do gain percentages. That's how it works. Um, and again, surprisingly, that's where the passion came in. I didn't expect so much passion from everyone. Uh, that was that was just a blessing, luck if you would like to call it that, I did not expect it. There were so many people that were so fired up and passionate about idea. They were like, I want to work with you. I was like, okay, let's make it happen. Um, that is and... something I have found though, is that if you make something that's a interesting to begin with, that catches their attention, but then B, you give them the ability to influence it a bit so that they can become part of it, especially when it comes to world design. Like people want to be part of a world, as Rob was saying earlier, like Star Wars. Like so many people would be willing to work for Star Wars for free just so that they could work on Star Wars. Exactly. It's true. It's very true. And I mean... <laughs> And, and then there is a following. There's probably going to be a following question here, and I'm going to answer that right now. Is how do you get them to stay, right? Mm -hmm. And lock um, the doors. Besides, <laughs> besides money and besides locking the doors, uh, there is. There, <laughs> I don't think I've done that to anyone yet. I don't know. That may happen soon. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, and everyone that's listening to this is probably dying laughing. Uh, so. <laughs> But the no, no one's listening. <laughs> no, no, except for like the the one artist who knows. Oh crap! Yeah, they're gonna lock the door at me this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the in the way that I actually get them to stay 
is uh one they again the passion just carries on but two they see things happening so that's another big piece to this with marketing and business you're not only marketing to the external customers you're marketing to your employees um, and people that are working with you for you around you your partnerships maybe if you are like a business owner in this and there's like three of you and you've co-founded this thing you're working for one another so if if you are not making progress to move forward and actually things really are happening people will go away um and that's just the truth of it so here with like with smudgy games i it, it creates it's creating a domino effect so i mentioned that in the article briefly about having this one small domino and then pushing it over and it just makes this huge splash right and then i think it was my wife who's like dominoes don't splash and i was like haha um but it's you know it's kind of true where in this in this regard because it's so far-fetched to hear a domino splashing that's what you have to do to keep people uh, is do the impossible and it sounds crazy to say that but it makes it means that little by little and by impossible you know i don't mean really truly impossible but it feels that way but little by little when you do those to get those wins people start seeing progress they're like oh my gosh this is this is happening this is really happening this is going through so one thing that i think really hit everyone on my team was when i was like reaching thousands of people at that point they were seeing the numbers they were like holy crap people want this and i was like yeah they do so marketing is a thing and it will help you um not only reach your customers and have them purchase your stuff but it will keep your employees around too um and that is a a very hard clear-cut thing there's no other way around that one um you need to make sure that your product is good, which is where we go. Now we're full circle, quick validation. So if your product's good, your marketing numbers will be good. Your people stay on your team and your customers are happy and everyone wins and, it, and it's a juggling act. Um, and you have to keep the flow of motion going. So as of lately, um, what I had done and people had had seen uh, you know, a few things happening where we, we were slowing down a bit, um, but that's because on my side, I messed up. There was a piece that I missed that I had to go back and something that I put off because of even just being busy in general, I didn't have time to get to, but I didn't, it became such an important piece because we had to pivot and that pivot rocked my world. So to give you an idea, six months ago, we had to cancel our Kickstarter for World of Idea because we ran one. And we canceled it, not because it wasn't going to fund or not because we didn't have the means to, but because the calculations that I had for shipping and other things, while they were correct, there were other options that I could have explored that were better and I wasn't able to get to it, right? And there were a few other situations that had happened too in that time and we went through some bumps because that's the other thing for everyone listening. You're going to go through bumps and if you can endure the bumps and go through those obstacles you can go through anything <laughs> so <laughs> and by bumps he means like you know potholes the size of a small car exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the, you're right absolutely they were they were yes and some of them were scary because they just kept on going deeper 
Um, and it, it was hard to get through. It really was on my side. Um, but what ended up happening is there were a few pieces that I just didn't, I didn't fit together at the time. And I had realized I was like, Oh, you know, these were like some of my aha moments of pivoting. I was like, I need to be focusing on this. This is what I need to be doing here. And then I need to bring on these people. And the thing about uh, people in general, this is where kind of my UX psychology stuff comes in. When they see growth happening, they're going to stay, but then that also encourages more people to join, right? It's called social proof. And that's an actual marketing bargain term. When you have social proof, um, people will continue to help your thing grow. Um, and that's definitely true on the customer facing side on like all the people that want your stuff, your product, but on the, on the internal side, the staff side, if they don't see growth, then, and they're like, ah, they don't get the social proof. Well, in this case, we went from a small team of like five, maybe four people. We hit 15, like in two days. And everyone was like, whoa, holy crap, what just happened? Um, and that's when when we had realized that we were like, okay, we're about to be in for a ride of our life. Um, and it did. It, it, it shocked us hard. There were growing pains. You know, some people did leave. Some, a lot of people stayed. Um, and then even today, there were four new strategic business uh, partnerships that I made today as before I got into the podcast. Um, and I pulled them in as well. And everyone was like, what the heck? How were these people? Yeah. <laughs> and I had to explain what's going on. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know? Um, and so it's, it's important where if you are just a designer who does not like these things, um, that's another, right? <laughs> that's why in, in that article, I, I distinctly specify, I say, Either you want to be a publisher, and what I just said is the publisher side. You're not just designing a game. You're, you are working for your employees. You are the logistics person. You are doing all these things. Um, but if you do just want to design games, then you should find a publisher. Um, because they will be handling all that for you. So, um, or hire somebody who basically acts as your publisher. Or that too. Yep, you could do that. Like, you can totally start your own business and then just hire somebody to do the parts you don't want to do. It's true. That goes back to cash. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you need the initial investment to be able to do that. Right? Yep. <laughs> you always need, like, that initial starting pool. And it's always yes, going yeah. to be more than you think it is. Always. It always will be. And, and that's kind of why, so if you were to go that route, that's a third option, which I didn't include on purpose because there is going to be some sticker shock there. Like if you hire a marketing person, so like for me, I charge 200 an hour. If you, if you can afford that for 200 an hour for marketing, then awesome. You yeah. Do that. <laughs> if you can't do that, you should pitch to a publisher. <laughs> And that's just marketing. That doesn't even include business strategy. So, um, <laughs> or logistics, right? Or fulfillment. Um, but yeah, um, I hope 
I guess that answered that question there of like, you know, how, how do we, you know, uh, how do we have the staff? Who's on there? Why? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think maybe um, the next kind of logical question is then uh, maybe you can talk to us a bit about the, the aspect of pitching with the publisher. So if we are working on the design side of things, um, what's been your experience with people approaching your company and um, whereabouts in the design process do you think that people should be looking at their, their product and saying, I think I've got something here. It's time for me to take this and see if they're, I can get that support from a publisher and this is a, a position to take it forward. Yeah, you know, um, especially as of lately, we have received a lot of submissions. Um, we had one person who submitted 28 different products to us, which was crazy. Wow. Um, we had, yeah, we had we had a few other submissions too. They had multiple projects they were doing. Um, and, and believe it or not, we are open to those things. So because we're so early in stages where, you know, if assuming if we do get as large as we hope we do, that'll become much harder in the future. So now is the time to pitch. Um, but in that situation, when someone does pitch, things that like I look for, any publisher for that matter, everyone is different, right? So they're, like, if you're gonna pitch to, um, I don't know, I'll use Evil Hat as an example. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, technically you could just make a third party, you know, setting or module for Fate and you could call it a day. But if you were to pitch to someone like Evil Hat, they have a very different, outlook on what they're going to sell to their audience than I am. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some things where we overlap, right? Like Fate is an OGL system that you can use to make your own stuff and commercially sell it. Tidebreaker is like that as well. That's going to be one of our new systems, so you can do that. Um, but the way that they'll do things, uh, they only have Fate to that degree as far as like a big known piece, right? Now, of course, they have other things, so maybe I shouldn't have said only. But that's going to be one of the main things on their mind. Uh, where in my case, I'm very picky um, <laughs> when it comes to what I'm putting out, only because um, of of what we do. Now, to back that up a few steps, I will say that pitching a system is going to be 10 times easier than pitching a setting. And that's kind of where publishers and designers are different. So if you are going to be a publisher, and or even just independent publishing, or you're the hobbyist with the one-off thing, your setting matters. But if you're a designer and then you're pitching to a publisher, you want to make sure your system is amazing and is actually fun to play. Because um, that's that's the big piece to this. This actually goes back to quick validation again. Uh, it has to be fun. It has to be you know a good concept. Um, and when I go into the next article, I will actually talk about. Um, the deeper sides of that validation piece of what makes it fun and why. And some of those covered, we, we covered tonight with accessibility and um, pulling people in, like, you know, it's easy to approach the game, right? They can all play it. They can be like, here, Johnny, here's a, let's play this game. All right, Jack, sounds great. Go get Susie. I just used some pretty interesting names, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so um, in this situation for me, it is much easier to pitch a system to me and then I can lay a, a setting over it um, because each publisher will have uh, different ways they, they do it. In my case, I am a writer as well, and I am someone that knows my audience too. So, for example, I don't publish horror games. 
at all. I'll, mm-hmm. I won't touch them for not because I don't like, like I, I actually enjoy Cthulhu. Uh, I love things like even Diablo. I don't know if that's considered horror, but um, you know, those things I do enjoy, but, and here's where the, the big, big butt comes in. I also publish a children's game called Trafaltry. That's going to be another thing coming out. So it's going to be really hard for me to put something like Trafaltry next to a horror, a true horror game. Um, you know, I mean, I'm going to start getting phone calls from angry moms. So like, I don't want that. Um, now, Paths, World of Adia, maybe even um, Necromancer 3086 is probably as intense as we're going to go, you know, because um, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. The demons in in Paths are pretty grotesque and brutal, um, but they're they're nothing like, you know, some of the things in Cthulhu. Right. Um, so that for me, that type of thing wouldn't fly like if someone and even if it was amazing, like if this was a great, amazing horror like setting, I'd be like. Sorry, can't do it. Um, but in my situation, because I, I do love indies so much, um, I would find someone that can for them. And I'd be like, hey, this thing's awesome. You should look at the system. And then, of course, it's up to them or and, and setting and be like, hey, go publish this, you know, um, where in my case, it's 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 more about the system and assuming that it is going to be fun to play and that you can show me that it's fun to play too like either you've done play testing on your own with x amount of people um like i actually had a submission the other day who did that they covered all those those grounds they were like yep we did 100 play tests i have you know 50 people on my small email list of strangers that i didn't even know um you know yeah i I covered this off i covered that that was perfect i was like awesome let's take a closer look now i haven't played the system yet but just from reading it I know it's good. The setting, on the other hand, uh, we had to go through a few things, and and that's kind of where that actually talking about that as I'm as I'm talking about that now, I realized that he had claimed it was horror, mm-hmm. but when I showed, and that's the other thing too that I I'm I'm kind of giving away a key here, I will actually go and validate the system and game for them. By the way, so I'll take it to retailers, and I'll be like, would this actually move in your store? Hmm. Or I'll take it to other RPG gamers that are in those stores, or the, or I'll have the store owners do it, or I'll even have the distribution partners do it, like ACD and Alliance. <laughs> right. Big, big, big names be like, does this move? And either they're gonna go, nope, or yep. Hmm. And for this guy, this stuff would move. So I'm like, okay, let's talk. And it, it's that rare case where the setting fits people that says, hey, this will move in stores. Other people look at this and say, well, that's not really actually horror, you know? Um, and I'll be like, okay, that's cool. I didn't get that vibe either um, in this situation. Um, or, hey, the system's fun, right? And and I mean, these people were very, like, because it's not the person that they're talking to, so they don't have to hurt their feelings in the right. situation. Um, and one, I do that to help the indie develop, uh, developer designer, mm-hmm. but I also do it to make sure that it, it fits for what we're doing as a publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and others others may do that that's something i do that's unique to smunchy games but there are there are others that may do that as well that's not something that i can say i'll, I'll do um right. but a lot of the time that feedback when it comes back um in like that situation 
I think it's something that a lot of designers don't think about is, will this product move in the store or are they just going to have two books set on the shelf for like three years? And while they're playing the game, they're going to pull it off the shelf, reference the rule, close it, put it back. Like, you don't want that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think it's, it's nice that you do this as part of your, your own vetting process, but it also does help. Like you said, the designer themselves, because maybe you can bring it to your, your LGS and say, Hey, do you think this is a cool product? Would would this sell? Um, but that's sort of just still limited to the small net that you have. But once you have the connections of larger groups, then you can really say, what what is the market like? Um, and that's something that not every designer is able to pull and, and ask around for. Yeah, that is definitely a big part of having a publisher is that they have access exactly. to larger groups of people yeah. that they can actually start asking about. Yeah. yeah, and existing relationships and all that stuff that they can they can rely on and mm-hmm. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and even there's and going one step beyond that, um, silent influencers make or break games, right? They're the people that um, they're they're just a gamer. Maybe they you know maybe they work as a Walmart cashier or they work at fast food or maybe they're a waiter or a waitress, right? Um, these are the people that make or break the community. And I think a lot of people forget that too. And there's a guy that I know who is a gamer who is like that. What he'll do is he'll actually take his money and and he'll just pile and stockpile savings just to buy games. And, um, there was a point in time up in Dallas where, uh, he dropped, I think like 17 grand in a game store just on games and i will go to him i will say what do you think of this and either he'll be like oh man this is sick like i want to play this thing now or he'll go i why are you showing me this like i don't even want to look at this thing yeah um and that's where you know a lot of people make make fun of the nerds in that case but this nerd is dropping 17 grand on your product so yeah you should probably pay attention to what he's doing yeah yeah (laughs) And uh, it's it's such a it's such a big piece, even like with miniatures too. like, you know, we're going to start doing mini bundles, um, even just for, you know, like our Uakun minis. I'll I'll go to him. I'll be like, hey, what do you think of this? And I remember when I showed him the hulking Uakun, he would just, just went bonkers. And he's like, when is the minis campaign happening? I'm like, <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know yet. And he's like, you tell me when it's happening, because I'm probably going to just break your goal entirely. <laughs> so. Uh, like and th- that's the feedback you want right yeah yeah, yeah of course. exactly and those are the silent influencers that are really hard to find unless you of course know someone like that or you are someone like that right so, yeah hmm that's that is that is a lot of cool shit to think about <laughs> i actually do have a question as well because like as a publisher you do have some influence in things as well so like let's say you have somebody who wants to pitch you their game idea how much like control are they going to end up uh giving up of their creative control over their own product because that is going to differ from each uh individual publisher yeah you know i'm a pretty rare one because and you're right Yes, as a as a publisher, I will reinforce that you have massive influence over 
what what that is right there. Um, but I'm a very rare one, and that's why I'm so picky too, is because I do believe in um, creativity. Uh, the one thing that a lot of publishers forget, and this is actually another reason why I became a publisher, is because a lot of publishers forget that um, these people that are pitching to you, they are creative people. And if you take this world or setting um, or anything along these lines, especially the settings, though, not saying that you can't be attached to mechanics, but there's something to be said about that that setting world where people will their soul will get crushed if you change it too much, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a publisher, when someone is pitching me that setting, uh, I take all of those things into consideration. So if someone is pitching to me, for example, a science fiction cyberpunk world, and it's kind of grimdark, right? Mm. Um, and that would be like one of the horror ones, you know, it if it doesn't look horror, and I know I can publish it, um, and it meets all of my marks, I will start asking them a ton of questions. And questions that would just be completely off the wall to most people. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of them matter. A lot of those things matter of like, um, are you going to go all Game of Thrones on people? Are you going to just start killing off these characters like Martin does? In mm -hmm. some cases, people enjoy that for a novel, right? People in their mind go, oh, this is a great page turner. But in some cases, when it comes to a game, people mm -hmm. get attached to characters. So if you're going to go and instantly kill them, then mm -hmm. in a game setting, not a book setting, but a game setting, you're you're going to have some people upset with you. They're mm -hmm. going to be pretty angry. Um, you know, yeah. like that would be one question. Another question would be like, um, uh, what's what's a good one here? Because uh, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> Just to, just to clarify, though, do characters, do you mean established characters in the setting of the world, or do you mean player-generated characters? Like, are you talking about, like, how oh, deadly a game... Oh, okay. I, I thought you might have yeah. been asking about how deadly a game is, like, to to the player characters. That's a different metric. I was just... wasn't clear on that, but... Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I mean, that would be more user experience, like, mm -hmm. if, if it's, uh, people would enjoy that. But established characters, like, you know, someone that you're going to see like an, an NPC regularly within the world that people know about, like, are you like, let's say there's a queen that people love. Are you just going to go and like chop her head off at the end of this? Like first, you know, five setting modules or whatever you're going to do. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do that, we need to talk and how you're going to do that because mm -hmm. anything you do is going to rock the boat. Yeah. And I, as the publisher have to take that into consideration. Um, mm -hmm. Other things that I have to take into consideration, too, are like um, the audience you're reaching. So something that I have had a few of these that will get pitched to me now in fantasy word worlds. I don't mind this um, because it's a fantasy world. But when you start like like, you know, politics become a thing and people have their own views and opinions and something that I strongly advise against is when you are publishing a world out um, you can have like maybe some real life comparisons there because you that but don't don't go so deep into that realm because if that's all that this is about you probably shouldn't be writing fiction right now because it's not going to sell not in the way you want it to um, and you're going to get a lot of bad feedback from one side or the other right um, and that hurts as a publisher too so 
I won't touch that. I'll be like, nope, sorry. You you need to go find someone else to do that. Huh. Um, and it's it's pretty important. Um, and it's something that that especially designers or writers, they have a hard time separating their, themselves from. Um, but then there's some who don't, and they're they're great, right? At that. Um, and I mentioned that one because that one's that one's a, a stinging pain point for some people. Um, mm. But I think it's also valuable information. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, controversy does sell. It does get people aware of stuff, even if you're boycotted. That generally tends to mean that people are aware of you. But for a publisher, it has lasting ramifications beyond that immediate short-term benefit. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> so there's there are some things and, and ways that I, I can help and work with them uh, to go through that. But going back to your original question about how much do they get to keep, uh, more than likely, they will get to keep all of it. And I will come to them and say, hey, what, you know, when it comes to this setting here, um, you know, what's, what are the next steps? Like I'll actually go through them with it, like an actual world building setup process that I have. Um, and I'm, I'll be like, I want to know your plan up until 2050, the year 2050, like, what are you going to do? Right. Because if I can market it that long, cause that's how long we have for paths, what can you do here? And if you're just expecting this to be a short series, cool. Tell me, let me know. Like, do you just want to publish this out until 2025? Okay, great. Um, and those are important key things to take into consideration, especially with the setting as well. Um, okay. Now, when it, yeah, and when it comes to like legal rights on my side, um, yes, I if I'm investing in it, I will expect ex, I will expect rights to your world. I will expect that and be able to use it, and that will be put into a contract, right? Um, but when it comes to taking like um, you know, making new things for your world or, or whatever, I'm not going to dramatically change it unless I know all of those questions that I had up front were asked. And I actually think that's where a lot of, a lot of things go wrong for a lot of people. Um, not, not uh, the designers, but the publishers. This is, mm -hmm. and for any publishers listening, I think they need to absolutely consider those things ahead of time before you take things on. Um, because they're, and really like, you know, dig deep into it, uh, take that dive, that plunge into those unknown waters, make a list. And I know you can't think of everything, but do your best to navigate the waters as best you can uh, before you, you bring on a designer. Um, or have a designer hired for you. If you're just like, there are publishers who they have no real interest in like game design themselves. It's just a product to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're one of those, make sure you hire somebody who actually does care about this stuff, who can look through this for you, because they can see problems that you would not be able to recognize otherwise. Yes, yes, so much that. Because, I mean, oh gosh, and, and that's where I guess I am. I am pretty rare because I deeply care. I care so much about that stuff. And you're right, there are a lot of uh, people I know that they it's just another product on the line that's going to go through distribution to hit their sales quota and it's going to do well next year and they don't care um at least in that regard either because they know it's going to sell or b um you know it's it's just another line item it's another sku a SKU on their on their mm -hmm. on their board and i just 
that I'm not about that at all. In fact, that makes me extremely uncomfortable even saying that because I know like being a, a creative myself and the world builder and, you know, I, I, when it came to designing paths, I even had to take my hands off and I had to give it to my lead designer, my lead game designer to design the system because mm. I was so, I, I, it was, it was bad for me because <laughs> I cared too much. So I had to separate myself. Right. Um, but I, I had to do it because I knew that if I didn't, um, you know, one, I, I knew that the person that I was bringing on, so, um, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to him here, uh, Jacob Waterman. He, he was the right person for this um, to bring in and, and work on this system. And he's done a lovely job. Everyone that has played this, the new version of the system for my flubs and other things of that nature, um, they love it now. And he, he did great. And it was clearly the thing I had to do. I had to separate myself and say, okay, you take this key, I'm going to take this key, and then we're going to run with it. And even then, and here's the other thing too, so there's more to this 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 short little uh, bit here. Um, as the lore master of my, my world and my world building, I still needed another perspective outside of myself and my wife, because my wife is my co-founder. I needed another uh, perspective, and I needed someone who was also going to be as passionate about the world as I am. And I found her. <laughs> and she's my lead writer. So, um, you know, she'll do those things uh, for me, and, and Bailey's amazing at them. Um, and there there's points now where she's like, she'll even remind me on things that I forgot about. So, um, and it helped. It helped a lot, right? So uh, I guess, but going back to the Polish thing, absolutely. Um, you need that. You, you need people to care uh, as a publisher. And if you, and if you are a designer who is pitching to a publisher that is like, Hey, this is just gonna be another product line. And you're sitting here thinking, Oh man, this is going to be my dream come true. I get to see all these things go. And they're just going to push it as just one of their other S you know, skew numbers. Don't, don't do it. Just, I know it hurts, but like, yeah, un unless you, unless you care about money more and profit, then, then you belong together, I guess, too. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't give a passion project to something somebody that does not have any passion for it. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. You need to find the right fit for what you're trying to do and how much you care about the world and setting that you're creating as well. Because if that's critical, then you want a publisher like yourself that really sees that, works within it, and moves that forward. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now there is one thing as well is that you've mentioned that you're extremely introverted you said in your own article I am. and yet here <laughs> you are as a publisher how did you make that big step because that's basically the opposite of intuitive <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> i know uh, this is one of those things that it sounds like this was not as, as good of an idea as I thought it was. <laughs> so, okay. All right. Um, wow. Oh, I, I was ready for this, but I wasn't at the same time. So this one's going to be fun. Um, yes, I am an extreme in introvert. Um, 
I I would hate I would love to just have a book or you know my game and be alone all day every day even even from my family at times I just I'm I'm that extreme of an introvert and um, it's funny because I th- I'd say maybe right now one of my one of my children they they're similar to me but like my oldest she is the extreme opposite of me so she'll like be in here like asking me like a million questions and all this and of course i i love my children um but there comes a point where i'm like honey i need you to go away for a while (laughs) (laughs) um and i'll i'll see you at dinner or something like that right um just just so i can think inside again because my the voice in my mind is so loud and um it, it can be hard to quiet it sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there are a lot of people listening right now who may be in that boat. And there were so many different wheels of emotions that I had to go through probably over the last 12 years of my life. Um, and that's saying a lot because it really did. It has taken that long to get to where I'm at. Um to, to be able to sit here on this podcast, talk with everyone comfortably, be very approachable, have that mindset, you know, um, and be in that light. So I almost had to create another version of myself. And it was really weird to do mm-hmm. and hard to do. Um, but it's still me. It's just if you know alt- if you do believe in like alternate universes and things mm-hmm. like that um i i had to do my best to come close to who that might be right um and the feelings are the same the thoughts are the same the emotions are the same but there was a setting in myself that i had to be able to turn on and off and um it's really hard like i can tell you right now after after we end the, this podcast I'm crashing and I probably won't talk to anyone tomorrow until about 12 or in the afternoon or 1 PM mm-hmm. central mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Because that's the other thing too, is I love people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, it can be very, very draining. And yeah. as, as mm-hmm. a publisher, you know, my, my first baby step started in, um, well, presenting, um, like just small PowerPoint presentations at like old jobs and consultancy work, you know, like getting in front of people. And I mean, I remember, <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. So got a little fun story here for you. I remember, cause I used to be a Python developer a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is before I got into UX design and all the other things I do too in game design, you name it. But at that time I was just so quiet and silent and i remember having to put together a presentation to show to the ceo of the company Mm. and um to his board of directors Mm. and i was i was just sweating bullets like it it was so bad (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i remember i remember (laughs) padding my shirt with um washcloths that i had taken from home (laughs) and (laughs) There was, there was, it was during the same day too, where like we got a nail in our tire and like there was a bunch of other oh things God. going on. It was awful. And we had only one vehicle too. And there was just anything that could have gone wrong that day went wrong for me. Um, and 
I'm just patting myself with, with washcloths and, and I'm trying to hold it together. And, um, I, so I also get really sick too, whenever mm -hmm. I had, whenever I had to present and like, God, I'd end up like just in the bathroom sick for mm -hmm. like hours. And, um, <laughs> I remember taking my, my laptop and I had, I, I had realized that the only way that I opened up to people, cause I really had to analyze this. And for any of you out there that are people that overanalyze things or um, you're in that, that spectrum, I had to find something about me that I opened up to people the most. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I turned it into a game and the only way that I could level up or I could hit the next tier mm -hmm. is if everyone in that room that I was speaking with was a gamer. And I feel the most comfortable around people that are nerds and geeks mm -hmm. and gamers and of that sort. So what I'm going to do is I'm now going to pretend that my CEO here knows what, you know, these games are. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it was it was the only way I could talk at, at that board setting. And keep in mind, the board of directors there, there was a, a gentleman there. Um, I can't say his name here on the podcast, but what I can say is that he was a very important person um, who had invested over 50 million into the company. And he's going to be in that same boardroom with me. Um, and this guy looks like, he looks like the dark version of Mr. Clean. <laughs> uh, so he's like, he's in like this like pitch black suit black shirt mm -hmm. black tie his tie even has skulls on it okay wow <laughs> and, and his his um he had he had wingtip shoes and his his he was so shiny on the top of his head um and he had this like wicked looking goatee and um you know he sat down and he had this like crazy looking massive rolex on and it's diamond encrusted <laughs> so he just flops it on the table Right. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting there with the CEO and he has everyone else in there. And I'm about to do this presentation. And um, of course, the first thing I did wrong was fill it with 300 slides. Right. And um, I'm sitting here going, OK, they're going to want to know all this information in 20 minutes. Got it. I can do this. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, you're correct. That is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So this guy, so the guy, I'm, I'm like on slide, I think I'm on slide 67 or something. Holy shit. Those lines. And, wow. and, uh, there, we're like an hour and a half in and, um, oh. my, my marketing manager at the time, um, she stands up and she starts clapping and I'm like, what okay. are you doing? <laughs> Why it's are over. You? It's done. Congrats. You did I'm, well. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Like, that's what I'm yeah. thinking to myself. And like, there was even a point where like I had to reach into my shirt. I pulled out the like washcloth and I wiped my forehead with it and I put it back. And I was like, Oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. And, yeah. and, and I, I'm like, um, thank you. And she goes, well done. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I just sit down and that was her way of saying the presentation's over. And um, I was like, all right. And, at the end of that, uh, obviously the investor who was sitting there mm -hmm. um, knew that I was very 
I don't do this thing. Like I don't present. Right. Yeah, I don't do any of these things. I mean, that and, should be obvious at that point. <laughs> yeah. And he, well, and the crazy thing was this is clearly I was at the right moment at the right time. And he pulled me aside uh, at the end of the meeting, you know, he talked to the CEO and uh, surprisingly the deal went through, which was cool. Um, after my uh, horrible mess up mm-hmm. and my, my, you know, uh, trial by fire of presentation and extrovertedness. Um, and keep in mind too, I'm like fresh out of college. All right. So like all of this is just an insane experience. Um, so I, I, he pulls me aside and we sit down. We're the only two in the meeting room at this point. And I'm, I'm like, I, I, I am praying for death right now <laughs> because of who he is. I was like praying for death because I'm just like, I don't know what this dude's going to say to me. He could fire me right now. Cause he's, he's board of directors. He's higher than the CEO. Like he owns the CEO <laughs> and, um, and he, uh, he said, he goes, uh, what game do you play? I'm like, what? And he's like, what, what games do you play? And I'm like, well, I, I'm in, I'm into the, these games here. I'm like, why? Like, and of course I, I asked something stupid and I say, why do you want to know this? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a gamer myself. And uh, he's like, you know, your presentation sucked. <laughs> I was like, thanks, man. Uh, I, I think. And he goes, uh, but, you know, you, you have so much potential. You can do this. I'm like, okay. And it was that day when, um, when he had pulled me aside that I had really, I broke out of my shell. And we talked about Warhammer 40k mm-hmm. uh, for a few hours. And actually, it's funny because I told him about my my first the date with my my wife, my, our very first date. We actually talked about Warhammer and Star Trek for eight hours, right? And I'm like, this is this is very kind of similar, but it's with with a board of directors member. Uh-huh. And, and he's sitting here telling me how you know about how great his Space Wolf army was and. Um, you know, his, his, all his dudes and, and, and all the, the things that, that he did against some chaos army and slaughtered all the, the, you know, corn traders. And mm-hmm. anyway, and this is the board dude. And I forgot I'm talking with the board guy. So I got really into it and he's like, you know, so that's, that's what you need to do. He's like, you just need to, you need to realize that not everyone may be a gamer and that's okay. But, um, but, but think of them in that way. Um, and the, I think the one thing that I had taken away that I really helped me break out for sure, aside from that chat with him is just, uh, the knowledge of, um, well, really that people are people. Yep. Um, he said, everyone's scared. He's like, I'm scared right now talking to you. I'm like, why? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, he's like, well, he goes, you are three times my size. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's fair. And he's like, but um, on top of that, he said, you know way more about this code base than I ever will. He's like, you're the reason why my company exists. And I was like, oh, I had a light bulb moment. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of my introvertedness started shifting is I actually realized my value. I realized the importance of what I'm doing. 
um, I realize that people all, you know, they put on clothes the same way I do, right? Yep. They may be different types of clothes, but they still wear them, you know? Uh, they could be scared about something that they don't want to mess up with me. We're all human. And, exactly. um, and that's when I really first learned that, so. It'd be nice if more people actually encountered that kind of a situation where it basically helps them out. Like, there's so many people that if they had gotten a single talking to like that, that probably would have changed their entire lives. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I had to wait for a really extreme mushroom trip to get that message. So <laughs> <laughs> We all have that's our good. stories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's going to be a great one. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> I mean, you want to hear it right now? It's not that interesting. But, uh... <laughs> okay, go for it. Well, uh, so the, the day, the weekend before I got married, my brother, I had not done any drugs in my life at this point. Uh, and my brother's like, uh, we're going to go back to our childhood home and, and you're going to have some mushrooms. And I said, Oh, all right. I'm open to that, I guess. And I did that. And, uh, we went to, uh, the town we grew up in and I, I, I had the dose that morning. And that was about one and a half grams dry. And so that's that's usually not a breakthrough point in terms of dosage. That's low. Um, but for some reason, it hit me when we were in front of our childhood home. And I was looking at the tree I had planted when I was nine, I guess. And it was huge. Like it was this ash tree that uh, that was now like 40 feet tall and I had not seen it grow up, but the result of that thing in that state put me in a mindset. And that's also when I peaked. And so I had like, that became my, my, my axis mundi. Like that was the, the whole world was revolving around that, that moment. And I had this experience of stepping sideways out of time and seeing my entire life from beginning to end and every choice I'd ever made or ever will make. And the impact of every single one of my choices became so clear to me and it shattered who I thought I was and totally changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and so I, I got that message too, that like, oh yeah, we're, everybody's just people, but that's, I got it in this way where it was like, yeah, but we're also all one thing. <laughs> we're yeah. all, we're all, there's, is there, how much of a gap is there between the air molecules and you and the rest of the universe? Like it's all one soup of atoms and quarks and all kinds of weird shit. And we're just little blips of consciousness and maybe we can make it nice for another blip. And that's, mm -hmm. maybe that's all we get to do. And that might even be enough. And that's, almost why I got into game design, but it definitely pushes me in that direction of wanting to facilitate connections between people. And so that's what pushes me. That's what makes me passionate about game design is bringing, and that's why I said earlier about the, the online gaming, losing something in the translation, because you don't get that, that you don't get all the facial expressions. You don't get all the, all the mannerisms, you don't get all the humanness of it. 
And to me, that's what makes it worth it. That's what makes those four hours beautiful is mm -hmm. the humanness of that activity. Oh, I see. So you're saying those of us who live in the middle of nowhere aren't human. In short, yeah, Canadian. Exactly. <laughs> Just human chocolate, I like. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> yes. Well, you heard it here, folks. We're not human. Deal with it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. If you were actually here seeing the podcast in person, then you could be human, but you're just going to have to deal for, you know, listening to it. You don't even get to see our faces. It's terrible. Thanks for undercutting my really poignant moment, Kat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're welcome. That's exactly what should have happened. Um. <laughs> to be honest, I, I, I kind of do agree, though. Like, I think your point about it getting into game design in particular is that people don't tend to get into something like game design unless they actually have something they want to share with other people. It's it's not just the creating part. It's that they want to create something and share it with others. And I think that is a really huge thing to take away from it. Yeah. And, and, and more than that, more than just sharing, because there are experiences you can have together and share watching a movie together is an experience you can share what i love about tabletop role-playing games is that they facilitate creation itself it's not just it's not just a product what it is is a roadmap and a framework to help other people be creative and there's almost no other medium that can claim that video games can claim that a little bit um but I think the openness of tabletop RPGs, the, the the fact that you're only limited by your imagination and not even the framework of the game is really there when you examine it closely. Um, but getting people to the table to, for the sake of imagining is so important. And I think that if we do anything well, if a game does anything well, it inspires other people to imagine things that they never could have imagined before. That's right. And that's what makes it remarkable. Yeah, man. It's a very unique medium that yeah. there's not really anything particularly like it because, yeah, there are some little bits of that in, you know, uh, video games, as you mentioned, especially ones with like map editors and such like. StarCraft to editor in particular, you well, can basically Minecraft. Minecraft is, is Minecraft, Legos in a computer. Yeah. That's that's great. Like that's Legos in a computer is a totally reasonable toy to play with. Like that's that's awesome. That's a great creative tool. You know. So video games do do it. I'm just saying, like, just not nearly to the same level yeah. that you can change everything. Yep. Yeah, you don't like this planet? <laughs> Gone. Like <laughs> this planet sucks. It's the planet of, of of farts. Why would we have a planet for that? I don't know. Yeah. Goodbye, yeah. Alderaan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the fart planet, right? Was that was that canon? I don't know. Yeah. Disney, Disney wrote it over. <laughs> I am my own Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're a game designer, you are, or when you play a tabletop RPG, you are. I mean. Uh, 
actually in our game star wars uh alderaan didn't blow up so oh yeah so that was that was uh that was the that was the pivot point on which that gm like made like undid canon who was like the death star fizzled in that moment rather than destroyed the planet and wow. we were all like whoa all right and like you were saying it before it's like this is familiar but like this is a hundred percent different like nothing like yeah throw out the timeline of the rebellion and all that stuff and like okay go and we're like this is awesome that is something that i've kind of been hanging on for a while now is what was said quite a while ago like the idea of the good necromancers right mm -hmm. like smunchies necromancers are good this is something that you actually find really really common in D D, oddly enough like almost every gaming group i've played that's <laughs> done D, D, somebody wants either a necromancer or a lich that's good guilty guilty sorry like it's such an odd thing that it's like this is just something that pretty much everybody wants this one concept and they don't want to be oh well we'll subvert it so it's they're evil but it's okay they're they're evil for good reasons or something it's no it's like they actually want to be the good person that controls the army of the undead mm -hmm. yeah and, no not me i wanted to be the bad guy but that's that's different <laughs> yeah but it is, but it is really oddly common and it stands out a little strange to me but it's like there are obviously some ideas that they they go beyond tropes like this isn't something that, like, I've never seen the trope of people trying to be the the good ledge. And it's not something that people tend to actively talk about. It's just this communal understanding that a lot of people really want this to be a thing. So if you make this possible in your game, people are going to be happy about it. And it's kind of like if you can start identifying these things that obviously people want to be able to do these things like you'd almost want to go through like a list of your own personal experiences with games and say okay what are the odd things that everybody seems to want to do but nobody's like provided for in other game settings like mm -hmm. or uh the systems yeah that's yep. market research of a, yep. of a kind yeah it's like what what market niche hasn't been fulfilled yet? Yeah, <laughs> I mean. Okay, absolutely. actually, sorry, sorry. Just before I forget, I don't want to interrupt you, but I just remembered there is actually a meme for that, and it's that it's so hard to raise a family unless they're all buried in the same plot. <laughs> Jesus. <Yeah. laughs> Oh, mm -hmm. all right. <laughs> that was pretty good. I mean, I'll give you a ten yeah. out of ten on that one. That was yeah. <laughs> slam dunk. Yeah, that was that was <laughs> the best necromancer dad joke I've heard today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, see, you may have just opened up a whole new set of dad jokes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more. I'm I'm sure too. I can't wait. Actually, I'm pretty excited. Uh, so, I I mean, if you write a book on that, I would totally get it. Just like in a heartbeat. Uh, oh, that's my new Power by the Apocalypse. That's my, that's my new Power by the Apocalypse game. That's uh, Necro Dads. 
You're <laughs> trying to raise kids, but like you're also on the undead. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. Yep. Necro Dad coming Necrodad. soon from Smunchy Games. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm writing down that product. Uh, <laughs> Necro Dads. Uh, I mean, and that's, you know, it, what, what you're saying, though, is true. It's. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and we had to do it carefully though too, right? Like there are there are bad necromancers in the world, but they're not. It it ties. Yeah, I mean, it's how they were. It's how they were created. So mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, I'll I'll just go a little bit into the lore here. I'm not going to go that deep, but it's more like in the world of Adia, there were two. There there are two deities. No, I can't talk. There are two deities. <laughs> One is the Fire Eternal. The other is the Abyss. The Fire Eternal created um, three beings, the Music Maker, Death, and the Architect. Um, the Music Maker was jealous of Death because Death was actually bringing um, the living to the Fire Eternal, making them undead. And um, this made the Fire Eternal happy. And uh, Music Maker gets jealous. Fire Eternal says, hey, if you stop, you know, if you keep on doing this, you're out. Music Maker's like, well, fine. And he goes and he attacks Death, and he steals Death's scythe. Music Maker gets casted out. He now he gets cast into the void. He becomes the Abyss. He is the one to create um, Necromancers first, so it still plays in that familiarity, right? Necromancers are evil. Um, but what ends up happening, though, is he's doing it through Death's scythe. He's not doing it through his own being. So as he's created these liches, he's created these necros, all of a sudden, after this abyssal war happens, death gets his scythe back. Therefore, now the Fire Eternal has control over all of the necromancers, meaning there are two different types of undeath. There are un- undead, who are kind of like ghosty looking, right? Um, and then you have undead that are decaying and rotting, which are from the abyss. So there is a different form. Therefore, when these classes are played, and the necromancer in this world uh like there again uh, the listeners will get to see this image what you see here is that um there you know these and i'll describe it there's purple like ethereal skeletons here coming out and that's actually death magic which is different than undead and we had to explain it this way in lore because people are so used to just seeing zombies rise from the ground and that's it there's more to undeath and that's what that's what we're doing here, and that's what really caught people. And they're like, "There's more to undeath," and then there will be a point where you have an undead paladin. What's up with that, right? Like, how does that work? <laughs> but it's a thing. You can have an undead paladin in Adia, or you will someday in the future. Spoiler alert to everyone waiting for expansions. Um, <laughs> you will be able to. So, like, that's a thing. Or like vampires. We do vampires very differently as well. You know, they don't bite to suck blood. In fact, their fangs are used as a decorative purpose. They they put filigree on them and, and use them as a status. Instead, they, they suck spirit magic from people mm. and things. So, you know, and it's their addiction, what makes them a vampire. Mm-hmm. So, psychic mm-hmm. vampire is cool. It really is that the vampire is going to come over for a little sucky sucky. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, Where, this, what's going on? Yep. 
what's happening here. <laughs> um, Sorry, but, just drawing everything. So it's, I mean, it's cool that you're hanging on that because it's, it's true. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a thing. Um, and you're right that it makes you want to go back and be like, what do people really want to do? Like, why do they want to do this? Um, and is there a different outlook on it and why, you know? Um, and how can you implement that? So that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. I think in general, people, players at least, in video games and role-playing games as far as I've seen, have consistently liked the idea of something that's mostly familiar, but different enough that it feels that something's not quite right about it and they kind of want to explore what's different about it. It's familiar enough that they feel comfortable exploring, but there's enough different that there's something to explore. Yeah, this is zone of proximal development. Yeah. It's 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 yeah. not a cake not a cakewalk, not overwhelming. Well <laughs> <laughs> well we just we just clocked almost three hours. We're at exactly. 40. Yeah. Oh wow. So, uh, yeah well it's been fun this is I've, I've enjoyed myself uh sorry i loved it it was great oh good i'm yeah. glad good i'm glad you had a good time uh, yeah. yay <laughs> <laughs> yep since uh, we've done the round of applause means it's over right yeah technically <laughs> i mean we'll leave it in but technically okay. it's over now we have to you know talk about warhammer 40k for like four hours yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> tell you about my Blood Angels army. No. <laughs> oh, Blood Angels. How dare you? I have some Plague Marines in the closet over there. Well, we're going to town. And then... Yep. All right. Yep. And some, and some Necrons. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Heretic. Yep. Oh. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> your, your false emperor. Oh, false your, emperor? Your corpse god. Corpse god. <laughs> You're, have you seen Nurgle? I'm just saying. Grandpappy Nurgle? You mean Grandpa? He makes the best soup ever. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. I love it. Oh, God. Oh, mm. Yeah, my, my wife actually makes fun of me because she'll just, she's going to be like, hey, I'm just going to open up your Marines like they're cans. And I'm like, what? And she's like, Tyranids. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, yeah. I, no, no, if, you're playing Tyranids, then no, they're they're opening them easier than tin cans. Yeah. <laughs> tin cans actually take a little effort to open. This is paper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those gene stealers, it's like this is wrapping paper on Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. <sighs> well, cool, man. Thanks everybody out there for listening to another episode of Flail Forward. Um whether you want it or not. Yeah, whether you want to or not. We made you do it because <laughs> we have that power. So thank you for letting us have that power, I guess. <laughs> and thanks again, Spongy, for coming on the show. It was uh, yeah, Very really great so. being able to pick your brain and uh, hear about what you guys are working on. So we look forward to the next uh, blog post and best of luck with the products. Sure yeah. thing. I mean, I appreciate you know inviting me on and just chatting with y'all. So you're yeah, a wonderful group of people. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. I don't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who paid him to say that? Yeah. Yeah. 
this was a big <laughs> advertisement for flail forward <laughs> See, this is the marketing thing he charges 200 dollars an hour as he yeah, said yeah. <laughs> he's gonna send us a bill i think <laughs> it's in the mail no yeah i knew it, it. not too <laughs> Um, uh, but anytime, yeah, you, anytime you want to come back on and, and, uh, talk about, uh, you know, what you guys have got going on in the next, uh, next phase, whatever, um, when you guys, uh, get that Kickstarter back up, you guys get all that sorted. Yeah, definitely. Uh, give us a, give us a ring. Love to talk about it some more. Sure. It'll happen. I'm, I can't cool, wait. Man. Sounds great. So for Mark, Catrice, Munchie and myself, good night, everybody. Cause it is night where you are. Never forget that. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, or not, we're not picky, leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and uh, and Pornhub. Because why not? Gotta go where your audience is, right? Good night, everyone. <laughs>